huge thank you goes to the Arts Council of England, who are the main sponsors of our festival, and we're so grateful for their support. And I'd also like to highlight particularly Cora as well from Queen Mary University, who's supported and arranged this day. So with no further ado, it's great, great pleasure that I have in introducing Simon Avery and the whole team of poets and performers and academics here. Welcome to everybody. Um, Simon is a reader in 19th century literature and culture at the University of Westminster. His publications include two studies of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Mary Coleridge, Selected Poems, Thomas Hardy, A Reader's Guide, and Sex, Time and Place, Queer Histories of London with Kate Graham. He's currently completing a book on the Bronte family and politics. So over to you, Simon. Thank you. And many thank you, Gina. Thanks so much. And, and thank you all for coming. It's, it's really amazing to kind of um, see you here today. When Cor and I um, started to think about what we might do uh, for this day, um, to celebrate Elizabeth Bat Browning, a remarkable poet by uh, any standard, um, we kept coming back to the idea of place and the significance of place for Elizabeth Bat Browning and her work. So what we've organised for you today is uh, a series of talks around that kind of issue that, that looks at it from a number of different perspectives. So this morning I'm going to talk about Bat Browning's time in Ledbury and the significance of her time here for her career. It seems really great to have this opportunity standing here uh, with everything just around us. And then Cora will talk about uh, Elizabeth's time in London and Italy as she became increasingly internationally uh, established and wrote some of her most compelling and combative work as well. Then this afternoon, uh, we're really pleased to be joined by the academic and novelist Laura Fish, who'll be talking about Bat Browning's complex relationship with slavery and, and reading from the astonishing novel, um, Strange Music, which was published in 2008. And also, we're really pleased to be joined by Angela Layton, academic and poet, who's been absolutely essential to the recovery of you know, a tradition of Victorian women's poetry, I should probably say traditions, multiple kind of uh, there. Um, today, Angela's going to be speaking about the influence on Bat Browning on other women poets of the 19th and 20th centuries. So I hope there's going to be plenty of time for questions, plenty of time for discussion you know, as we go along too. Uh, later in the afternoon, the final session, we'll try and bring things together, think about where we might want to go uh, with future ideas around kind of Bat Browning too. The other presenter we've got is Sharon Ekman. Uh, Sharon's an actor and singer, and she's wonderfully agreed to do uh, some of the readings of uh, works by Bat Browning and other women poets throughout the sessions today. Um, Sharon gave an amazing reading of extracts of Aurora Lee 
at a conference that I organised in, in London. So um, I'm really pleased that she's here and agreed to do this event with us today. Just some other points about the programme before we start. Um, lunch is from 12.30 to 2, so we're giving you plenty of time to, I think there's lots of eateries uh, round about, and we'll be finishing by 6 this evening. So I hope the programme will be something that you're interested in. Feel free to come and go, whatever, you know, uh, join uh, whatever sessions you would like to join across the day. But thank you very much for coming. Okay, so further ado, let's, let's get the show on the road. Um, it's always a joy to talk about Elizabeth Bat Browning. Her life spanned the first six decades of the 19th century, and she wrote some of the most important literature of that period. She was at the heart of many key literary and artistic networks of the early to mid-Victorian period, both in London and later in Florence. She seemed to have a good knack of, of going to live in really fascinating kind of places. And she was also what I would call now, um, you know, a kind of activist, you know, constantly calling for political and social change. Her politics aren't always easy. Uh, not always commendable, you know, in some places, and I'm sure we'll come back to that a little later on. But nevertheless, you know, all this for a woman in the early to mid-19th century is, you know, really something, I think. And yet, this isn't the story about Elizabeth Bat Browning that's often remembered, because from the time of her death in 1861 to the important rethinking about her life and work that started to occur 100 years later with the work of feminist criticism, a different story dominated. The story of Elizabeth Bat Browning as a weak invalid on the brink of death, waiting to be rescued from the dark and claustrophobic top floor room in the family house in Wimpole Street by a man, another poet, Robert Browning, who's going to take her away from London from her tyrannical father to a new and wonderful life in Italy. Some of you may be familiar, it's the obligatory slide, I'm afraid, for the Barretts of Wimpole Street. Yeah, some of you may be familiar with this story from the way it's kind of been mediated you know, in this way. The very popular film uh, released in 1934 and starring Norma Shearer and Frederick Marsh was based on a stage play of 1931 by Rudolf Bessier. So itself a Broadway hit. So you've got these kind of, you know, multiple kind of representations of Barrett Browning. This version, it's just astonishing kind of any of these, these pictures. Um, this version of Elizabeth Barrett's life absolutely plays up the narrative I've just outlined. Elizabeth, you know, mostly is lying around on her chaise long, accompanied by her spaniel Flash, who's a key player in all of these stories, with her father attempting to absolutely control the lives of his children. Until, of course, Robert bursts in the door and new life beckons. We can see why this narrative for film, for stage, for thinking about Elizabeth Barrett, you know, might have been seen as attractive. It has all those elements of a fairy tale-like romance to it. The waiting heroine, the tyrannical ogre, the rescuing prince, the escape from imprisonment to freedom, from the cold 
of mid-19th century London to the warmth of Italy with a lover. Of course, much of this is based on facts of a sort. Mr Barrett was against his children getting married, but he wasn't always quite the tyrant that the play and film emphasise. Elizabeth was ill. Although the illness is often difficult to diagnose exactly, it was centred you know, on her lungs, and she was subject to all kinds of medical interventions, some of those really lovely ones of the early 19th century, including leeching and cupping and being suspended in a sling off the floor for days on end. And Robert did whisk her away to a new life in Italy. But that relationship, too, is far more complex than the Bessier narrative suggests. There's, of course, so much more to Elizabeth Browning than just the heroine of a romance plot and the writer of what has become that most famous line of her poetry, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. I just did a little Google you know, check on this. There's a phenomenal array of things you can buy with this song from T-shirts onwards, your cars, the whole lot, uh, absolutely being uh, mediated, particularly around Valentine's Day. Um, okay, to understand this complexity then that I'm arguing for, about Brown's complexity, and we'll all be looking at that in some way across the state, we need to leave London, and we need to go back to her roots in childhood, back to the area that we're in today. Elizabeth Barrett, or Elizabeth Barrett, Moulton Barrett, as the full family name was, was born in Durham in 1806, but raised here, near Ledbury, from 1809. This is one of the few surviving watercolour images of the family home, Hope End. It was called Hope End, which was built by her father, Edward Barrett. So hope here means um, a valley. So it's kind of end of the valley um, is, is the name that's working through there rather than anything a bit more um, sinister. Um, it was situated about three miles north of Ledbury and four miles from Malvern. So absolutely central to uh, that spectacular natural uh, scenery there. When they arrived, uh, Edward Barrett pulled down the house which was there, and built this astonishing building. It's designed in the Regency Indian Gothic kind of style that we are often more familiar with from Brighton Pavilion. It has that kind of you know, sense to it. It cost him the inordinate amount of money of £27,000. This is 1809, uh, we need to think of there. And it's just remarkable. It had minarets, turrets, stained glass windows, vaulted ceilings. There were 20 bedrooms outside. There was a grotto, an ice house, a subterranean passageway leading from the house to the gardens, and a deer park. And those grounds were landscaped by Luden too. So we've got this kind of big investment into improvement. All of this gave it, as Elizabeth's mother Mary said, an opulence reminiscent of the Arabian Nights. That was her point of contrast here. Elizabeth was immensely happy here at the heart of a loving family as the eldest of 12 children, one of whom died in childhood aged four. Her poems and letters addressed both to and about her father demonstrate at this point 
have very great love for him and obviously ask us to revise that kind of mythic idea of Mr. Barrett as lifelong authoritarian figure. For example, in one of these early poems called Hope Ends During the Improvements There, which was written for her father's birthday in 1815, she had a habit of writing birthday poems to members of the family. Elizabeth reflects upon the relationship between her father, the family, and their home. These polished walls, raised by a tasteful hand, these smiling shrubs, these tangled walks and hills, these rising rocks hewn by your active band and drooping flowerets washed by murmuring rills. These waters by your hand are taught to glide and wild ducks strain their soaring wing for on the limpid wave they ride while sweets the gathering zephyrs fling. An useful farm now owns thy generous sway, and oxen fatten fast at thy command. A pleasure comes with each untasted day. Thou reap'st the fruit and nursles all the land. Long mayest thou live, as on this happy day, amidst thy smiling little family. And may we be grateful ere thy cares repay and play about the shilling gallery. And may we ever bless this smiling home and live united by a tender love, secluded from that world where vices roam. Then hand in hand, proceed to God above. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Um, an early poem, in many ways, a fascinating one. I noticed the and, and, and that works through that really, really interestingly. It seems on one level to draw upon a tradition of the country house poem, you know, uh, familiar in 17th and 18th century uh, literature. Here, Edward, the father, is depicted as a kind of benevolent prime mover who protects his people from that world where vices roam and who looks to secure this community, the social community, you know, the political community, and also the natural world. These waters by your hand are taught to glide, and a useful farm now owns thy generous sway. This is a world of idealised pastoral in many ways, you know, of fecundity, of nature, working, you know, for her father. And it seems to me kind of poignant in a number of different ways, both to give us a view of you know, the young Elizabeth Barrett's understanding of her home, but also in this particular kind of context, a political context of the end of war with France in 1815. It seems to me that there's a celebration here of a particular kind of Englishness, you know, in reaction to that war. Hope ends is maybe what we both might fight for and the reward we might receive. So there's something really interesting here about the, the connection with that notion of the country. In contrast to her relationship with her father, um, I think Elizabeth's relationship with her mother was rather more problematic. For whilst there's no denying the great love for Mary, Elizabeth often reacted against 
the model of middle-class womanhood that Mary represented. It was a life you spent almost continually pregnant and taking care of the family, pressures which would eventually break her health. In a letter that Elizabeth wrote to Robert Browning in 1846, for example, she refers to the physical and psychological damage you know, done to her mother by her restricted life. She wrote this, it's a really amazing kind of you know, um, moment. She said, Mary was of a nature harrowed up into furrows by the pressure of circumstances, a sweet, gentle nature which the thunder a little turns from its sweetness as when it turns milk. Too womanly she was, it was her only fault. It's a remarkable set of images there. As Barrett images her mother slightly turned from her sweetness by those kind of dominating patriarchal power dynamics of the early 19th century. And in many ways, Mary functions as something that Elizabeth goes on to define herself against. Because from a really early age, Elizabeth Barrett resisted all those stereotypes for young girls of the period. Her diary, for example, is full of references to robust physical activity on the hills surrounding her home. I cantered up the road and up the hill with a holding the pummel, without holding the pummel, sorry. The pony carried me swiftly. And her letters, too, record that annoyance with what she calls the glittering kaleidoscope of fashion and the stupid evenings of social visiting. There was no holding back in her um, condemnation really early on. And rather than committing herself to learning singing, playing the piano and needlework, that accomplishment system of the early 19th century, she dedicated herself to a systematic learning programme alongside her brother Edward. Edward, um, who Elizabeth called bro, had all the immediate advantages of being a boy of a wealthy family, and so unsurprisingly was sent to Charterhouse School. Elizabeth, of course, as a girl, wasn't. It would be decades before institutionalised learning was available for young women through the Education Acts later in the century, and even longer before proper higher education would be available. This would be one of the key calls um, of the new woman in the closing years of the century. But this is Elizabeth Barrett we're talking about, and none of this was going to stop her as she pursued a system of self-education with really dogged determination, significantly, again, supported by her parents. Again, a very different image than we get from the Barretts of Wimpole Street. This self-education allowed Elizabeth's mind, as she wrote in her diary, using a really kind of interesting image of exploration, to, quote, roll itself out as the chart of a voyager. I really like this image uh, because it points to what Hope End and the Lebri area uh, gave to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a space in which her mind could roll itself out. And she read liberally, she read eclectically in the widest range of challenging writers by British, European and American novelists, poets, historians and philosophers. She devoured the work of writers as diverse as Dante, Milton, Shakespeare, Pope, Voltaire, K. 
Kant, Spinoza, Wordsworth, Scott, Austin, de Stahl, the list goes on and on and on. When I started uh, kind of to work on Bat Browning, I thought it would be a really good idea to try and read what she read and then like, yeah, really quickly gave up because <laughs> it's, uh, it's just too much, too much of all this going on there. Um, she taught herself French, um, German, Italian, Spanish. And then initially on her own and then under the tutelage of two local scholars of Dale Price and Hugh Stuart Boyd, she learnt Latin and Greek. Moving here into that, really that, that particularly male intellectual terrain of the time. It was Greek that really attracted her. Uh, she was initially drawn by the shape of the characters and then by the literature. And she subsequently came to think of Latin as being far less interesting than Greek. It was really Greek that attracted her. And she went on to achieve a level of understanding and fluency in Greek, which was far greater than Bro achieved in his studies at Charterhouse. Again, her diaries and letters give a view into that. She, she knew Theocritus, known as Hesiod, Sophocles, Euripides, Plato. Again, the list would go on. She would later translate Aeschylus's Prometheus Bounds for, for publication, not once, but twice. You know, so when she looked at it again, you know, she wanted to, to revise that translation, as well as working on the writings of the Greek Christian poet. I am not content till I excel, Elizabeth wrote of her studies, but bro, the brother, is satisfied with mediocrity. There's a real kind of power, power game going on in that way. Um, hers undoubtedly was uh, an astonishing mind. In many ways, we can find this excitement in study and intellectual um, endeavour reflected in Aurorally. Bat Browning's major work, published in 1856, which follows the development of Aurora into a successful poet against all the odds. It really is a, you know, a phenomenal work. In the first book, of this poem. It's a nine-book epic of over 11,000 lines. My students kind of freak when I tell them this, but, you know, it's, it's amazing. Big recommendation of the day. Um, in, in the first book, Aurora has been orphaned and is now living with her aunt, who kind of functions as a kind of image of social and psychological oppression. But then Aurora finds her father's library. Books, books, books. I'd found the secret of a garret room piled high with cases in my father's name. Oh, piled high, packed large, where creeping in and out among the giant fossils of my past, like some small, nimble mouse between the ribs of a mastodon, I nibbled here and there at this or that box, pulling through the gap in heats of terror, haste, victorious joy, the first book first and how I felt it beat under my pillow in the morning's dark, an hour before the sun would let me read. My books. At last, because the time was ripe, I chanced upon the poets. As the earth plunges in fury when the internal fires have reached and pricked the heart and throwing flat the marts and temples, the triumphant gates and towers of observation clears herself to elemental freedom. Thus, my soul, 
at poetry's divine first finger touch, let go conventions and sprang up, surprised, convicted of the great eternities between two worlds. Thanks, Sharon. You can hear, typical of a rural leader, the wonderful energy there, but the excitement you um, in that meter. Um, it's also a kind of amazing set of images, uh, which reads the discovery of poetry in terms of eruption, uh, in terms of kind of geological upheaval. I think it's a, a very contemporary um, in terms of the sense of early 19th century scientific thinking about geology, and also that wonderful overthrowing of social and political structures, the triumphant gates and the towers of observation. Um, it's one of my favourite uh, moments in the work, which is it's just intriguing on so many levels, but this amazing moment of finding the power of poetry, which would be so important for Aurora and, of course, so important for Elizabeth Barrett. Significantly, um, Hope End also became associated with political as well as educational exploration for the young Elizabeth Barrett. And we can see this again in one of her earliest letters addressed to her father. Um, she's lamenting Mr. Barrett's absence from the family home because she's not getting to hear tales of political events that he seems to regularly tell his children. She writes this, Hope End, in spite of the romantic prospects which environ it, in spite of the beauty of beholding nature wrapped in her bridal robe which we have at present, is dull and is lonely. The sun rolls over our heads. No papa is here to greet us with his hospitable smile. The moon shakes off her yoke. No wig is here to enliven our fireside hours with history of the election. Elizabeth was only eight years old when she wrote that poem. <laughs> you just feel like incredibly like humbled by all of this. Yeah. Um, it's a letter that of course demonstrates that precocious political awareness which was to become one of the foundations of her career. As she notes here, her father, like her brother Bro and her uncle Samuel, was a member of the Whig Party, um, the party of opposition for much of the early 19th century, and a party which was committed to defending the legal, civil, and religious rights of the individual, particularly in the face of some particularly draconian Tory legislation in the years immediately following the end of the Napoleonic Wars. What's particularly interesting, too, about this letter, though, is the way in which Elizabeth depicts her father at the side of the hearth. Uh, that space, you know, uh, which in conventional 19th century thinking about the family was the traditional domain of the dutiful middle-class wife. So it seems to me that kind of Elizabeth is already eager, even at age eight, that political concerns rather than domestic concerns take center stage in her drawing room. And that kind of, the language of political debate in the drawing room is something that you know, crops up again in Aurora Lee. And it's here too, at the house near Lebury, that Elizabeth begins her vocation as poet. You can see these things going together, 
commitment to education, commitment to politics, commitment to vocation as poet. It was clear that she always wanted to be a poet rather than a novelist. She read loads of novels, you know, absolutely devout novelist, but absolutely believed poetry to be a higher art form. And in this respect, she seems to take on board the thinking of many of the male romantic poets of the time. Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, Keats, who believed that poetry was sensual to society and that poets had something important to say about society and social and political debates. And Elizabeth's dedication to this role, perhaps unsurprisingly, given what yeah, I've told you so far, starts early. Um, as she writes in 1820, looking back, in my sixth year, um, recent dating of the letters suggests it might be the ninth year, but it's still nine years old yeah, in that way. Uh, in my sixth or ninth year, for some lines on virtue, which I append with great care, I received from Papa a 10-shilling note enclosed in a letter which was addressed to the Poet Laureate of Hope End. <laughs> you can see where she's going to go with this, right? You know. um, I mention this because I received much more pleasure from the word poet than from the 10-shilling note. Poet Laureate of Hope End was too great a title to lose. So what did this poet lawyer of Hope End uh, produce in this incredible period while she was living in Lebury? With the help of Sharon, I want to give you a flavour of some of the material she's writing at this time, which is, is far more extensive, far more varied, and I'd argue far more accomplished than is often given credit for. And it connects astonishingly uh, with many of the poems that she's more well known for and many of the issues that those poems focus on. So we'll be coming back to those points as we go throughout the day. A lot of this, a lot of reading this material, I think, um, you know, asks us to think about tone and about voice, uh, about getting to grips with the tonal variations of these early poems, and perhaps using this as a way of reading differently um, from what we would otherwise term uh, juvenilia. I really don't like that term in, in so many ways because it seems to come with a set of kind of value um, judgments often used quite um, dismissively. Um, this is not to say that everything we're going to share with you in the next half hour uh, is uh, of great poetic uh, standard. It's not. There's some... Um, what I might term aesthetically limited uh, poems here. Uh, but that said, I do think they're culturally significant in all kinds of ways. One of Elizabeth Bout's very first poems, for example, probably written sometime in 1812, focuses on what she calls in the title The Cruelty of Forcement to Man, alluding to the press gang. Ah, the poor lad in yonder boat, forced from his wife, his friends, his home. Now, gentle maiden, how can you look at the misery of his doom? Thank you. That's it. Short one there. Um, so, obviously quite a rudimentary work in a lot of ways. But it nevertheless, you know, really early poem, nevertheless points to that concern with personal liberty, uh, which in various forms... Elizabeth Bratt would interrogate throughout her career 
from start to finish. And even here, there's already a sense of control over the meter. Uh, there's a powerful challenge in that questioning format. And just to re-emphasize, still only six years old you know, at this time, this remarkable developing uh, mind. In these early poems too, there's a burgeoning concern with the position of women in society. And I think a sometimes subtle exploration of the ways in which women might be represented in contemporary literature. In an untitled poem of August 1814, for example, which opens, Down in the Vale, a little cottage stood. Elizabeth Barrett uses a fairy tale like narrative to reflect upon the fate of her protagonist, Anna. Down in the vale, a little cottage stood, surrounded by a spacious wood, where Anna lived in blooming pride, and on her maker only she relied. When wandering out one early morn, through the wood and tangled thorn, the ushering birds sang in the day, for it was then the month of May. Now, Hours pass on, the dark night drew, she heard a rustling noise, she flew, but in her breast a dagger felt, when falling on her knees she knelt. Thy will be done, great God, she said, of grim death I am not afraid. During life I've done thy will, and now in death I love thee still. Then gently fell her head, she sighed. And falling on the earth, she died. <laughs> I love that ends. Thank you. <laughs> it was the hardest gig to ask Sharon to read that one out. And then we're going, how are we going to pitch this one? Yeah. Um, you, you can see just from the, the, the ones we're reading, you know, so many of these move to a kind of conversion narrative, move to kind of, you know, uh, a kind of, you know, we've done well in life and now we're going to to go to heaven. Um, this one, uh, in so many levels, seems uh, so trite, you know, uh, I think we could say. And yet also kind of ideologically loaded um, as well, because on one level, the poem seems to be a warning against female transgression. Um, there certainly seems to be a clear connection being made between Anna's pride and her staunch independence and her fate at whatever the hands of that evil in the woods uh, might be. Despite her attempts to justify her life to God, she dies a violent death in that environment which is so many fairy tales is often associated with a kind of psychological wilderness. And yet, um, let's look again at the bathos of the final two lines there. Then gently fell her head, she sighed, and falling on the earth, she died. Sorry, I can't read it anywhere near as good as, as you did there, Sharon. That side died rhyme um, kind of ushers in uh, a comic aspect, uh, which with the general excess of the emotion you know, throughout, suggests that Barrett hugely aware of poetry, hugely aware of literature from very early on, might have been parodying a standard trope of romantic sentimental verse. It's a really kind of different kind of poem from the other ones that we've got. And as she wrote elsewhere, she had a particular issue with conventional heroines who, quote, sighed 
and minced. That's her word, not mine. Yeah. So we've got something really early on interesting about thinking about gender. Ten years later, uh, when still only uh, 16, um, Barrett wrote a more direct and purposeful short piece on gender called Fragment of an Essay on Woman. Um, this fragment of an essay on woman derives its form from Alexander Pope's 18th century poetic essays on philosophical and political subjects. But this poem, Barrett's poem, examines the strategies with which conventional society, with which patriarchal society has contrived to rob women of any opportunities for female independence. Such strategies, she argues, work to, quote, enslave the heart, smother each flash of intellectual fire, and pinion the wind, the wing, sorry. Here's three standards from that essay. Can woman only triumph in the sigh, the smile coquettish or bewitching eye? A drawling words and affectatious airs, the only claim on notice that are hers? Are vases only prized because they break? Then why must woman, to be loved, be weak? Imperious man, is this alone thy pride to enslave the heart that lingers at thy side? Smother each flash of intellectual fire and bid ambition's noblest throb expire? Pinion the wing that yearns for glory's light, then boast the strength of thy superior flight? Eternal genius, thou mysterious tie that links the mortal and divinity, say, hath thy sacred influence never stole with radiance unobscured on woman's soul? Till, waking into greatness, it has caught the glow of fancy and the life of thought, breathing conception, eloquence that fires, and all that learning gives and heaven inspires? Is woman doomed obscure and lone to sigh? Comnina, Dacier, Moore, Destal, reply. Thank you. I think what I was writing at 16, this is just like, yeah, completely amazing. This is fairly challenging and combative poet for a young woman in the 1820s, which sharply critiques the strategies which demean women in society. I always think there's something here of the work of Anna Barbolt behind it too. But there's also a wonderful shift in that final couplet. There's an intensity about the language that's used here. There's an exposing kind of of a whole set of issues. And then this amazing shift. Is woman doomed, obscure, unknown to sigh, comnina, dacier, more de style, reply? What this about is, seems to be doing in this last line, is mapping out a skeletal tradition of radical female thinkers and achievers. The historian, Anna Camina, the classicist and translator, Anne Dacier, the dramatist, poet, novelist and abolitionist, Hannah Moore, and the, and the controversial novelist and champion of women's rights, Germaine de, de Stahl. 
These are figures which, in that last line, um, seem to offer hope, the um, structure of the poem suggests, for the reclamation of at least some women from the structures of oppression. And in Barrett's authorship of this poem, it's probably fair to argue that she saw herself joining this tradition of female radicalism and dissent, a fact which probably shouldn't surprise us, given that we know that along with this early commitment to literature and politics, she was also dedicated to the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft, and particularly vindication of the rights of women since she was 12 years old. There's some interesting discussion in the letters you know, uh, with her mother about her reading of you know, um, this phenomenal, groundbreaking book. So, in many ways then, the 18-teens was a period of incredible experimentation for the young Elizabeth Barrett. Intellectually, politically, and in terms of literary development as well. Just these short poems that we've looked at show a restless mind questioning inherited ideas about literary form and convention, the place of women in intellectual history, and that political commitment to liberty for which Elizabeth Barrett would become famous, indeed infamous, <laughs> in some cases. And all of this fostered in that intellectual crucible of hope end. But it was with a poem called The Battle of Marathon that Elizabeth Barrett made her first public foray into poetry. This poem was privately printed by Elizabeth's father in 1820, when she was just 14. And it's a remarkable first public work. Early publishing wasn't uncommon amongst many 19th century women poets. Felicia Hemans published her first volume when she was 15, for example, and Christina Rossetti, her first volume poems privately printed when she was 17. But whereas these early volumes by Hemans and Rossetti are often fairly conventional in their focus on short lyrics of love, nature, and often more pious religion, Elizabeth Barrett's first volume is nothing less than the four-book epic which focuses on the Battle of Marathon, that famous victory of the Athenians over the imperialist tyranny of the Persians in 490 BC. Modelling her work on Alexander Pope again, a Pope's translation of Homer's The Iliad, the poem, Barrett's poem, is full of scenes of warfare, debates over styles of leadership, and the epic paraphernalia of gods and goddesses arguing amongst themselves and you know, with the humans. It demonstrates a particular knowledge of the conventions of epic, which she would bring to fruition in her great work, Aurora Lee, that challenging nine-book epic about the development of a woman poet in the contemporary world. But in the Battle of Marathon, and this is written three and a half decades before Aurora Lee, there's already an astute understanding of Epic's possibilities. What's remarkable, too, is her choice of subject. Because unlike the form of the poem, the subject isn't derived from Pope's Homer, 
but it's her own choice that seems to have been drawn from her reading of Herodotus's histories and Charles Roland's ancient history. The Battle of Marathon is often seen by historians as the moment of the emergence of democracy in the Athenian state. So it seems to me a particularly apt subject for a young woman who sought to use her poetry for political ends. She's going back to that moment of the emergence of democracy. Interestingly, too, uh, is the fact, again, that the young Elizabeth Barrett is already starting to consider the expectations about gender in classical epic. There's plenty of celebration of a particular kind of warrior masculinity in the Battle of Marathon. But there's also some subtle suggestions that the most effective leaders, you know, male leaders, you know, uh, need to be emotionally engaged as well. In many ways, she seems to bring the crying soldier figure that we see only, you know, off stage in classical epic brings that figure kind of center stage. And there's also, really fascinatingly, some recognition of the role that women might have to play in political debate. In book two, for example, the chief matron, Delopia, is granted direct speech with which she calls on Miltiades and the other generals to take action. Oh, son of Simon, for the Grecians raise to heaven thy fame, thy honour and thy praise. Thus, thus shall Athens and her heroes fall? Shall thus one ruin seize and bury all? Say, shall these babes be strangers then to fame, and be but Greeks in spirit and in name? Oh, first ye gods, and hear a mother's prayer, first let them glorious fall in ranks of war. If Asia triumph, then shall Hippias reign and Athens' freeborn sons be slaves again. O oh, son of Simon, let thy influence fall, the souls of Greeks to triumph or to fall. And guard their own, their children's country's name from foul dishonour and eternal shame. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. That's great. Um, Absolutely, you can hear the power, you know, in uh, this speech. In this kind of really kind of powerful kind of rhetoric, Delopia argues that the honour of Greece shouldn't be compromised through lack of action. And she calls on the men to avoid the Athenians becoming slaves again. What's interesting, too, is that she adds weight to this oration by holding her baby in the air, drawing attention to the next generation while she speaks and thereby partly transforming her maternal role into a political one. I think that's a position that Elizabeth Barrett repeatedly uses in her writings. The significance of the child in political debates is something that comes up, and I'm sure we're going to address you a little later on too. Without doubt then, the Battle of Marathon is a remarkable opening shot for the young poet, a poem which on some levels seeks to rework both Homer and Pope. And certainly there's a, there's a wonderful audacity about Barrett's sense of self and what she might achieve at this particular time. As she put it in a semi-autobiographical essay called Beth, for example, the young Elizabeth Barrett believed she could be, quote, the feminine of Homer, or, as she joyfully writes, if anything, a little taller than Homer. You know, it's an amazing kind of lines here. 
The young Elizabeth Barrett's uh, first properly published, um, rather than privately printed volume, also centres on a long poem, but this time one which takes nothing less than the history and development of knowledge as its focus. An essay on mind, written in two books and published with a selection of shorter poems in 1826, sees the 19-year-old Barrett considering the claims to fame of scores of scientists, historians, philosophers, and writers from the classical age to the early 19th century. I, I had the opportunity to be involved in, in editing um, this poem for a collective works of, of Barrett's work, and uh, I was just gone for good with the list of names that she has, she has in it. It's incredible uh, knowledge and understanding. And significantly, I think, all the figures in this poem are men. Uh, from Homer to Wordsworth, Newton to Spursheim and Gaul, the developers of phrenology. Not even her beloved Mary Wollstonecraft makes the list. And there's certainly an early gesturing here towards the male hero worship, which would underpin much of her later writing. But it's an audacious young woman poet who weighs and judges the achievements of these men in a 1,300-line work. You know, she's not afraid to cast judgment you know, on these men. And a poem that keeps coming back uh, to the idea of genius, what she calls the Prometheus of our earth. Key to this work overall is the idea of the political uses to which knowledge can be put. For the overarching argument of the poem suggests what needs to be celebrated is flexibility of thought, a freedom of the mind, because this can help bring about physical freedom from oppressive regimes. And it's particularly Greece that she turns to in this context, at this moment still fighting its war of independence against Turkey. It's a smart and convincing argument. And it's no surprise, given that, you know, all this, that the intellectual figure who Barrett Brown, sorry, Elizabeth Barrett most celebrates in the poem, there's three men that she goes to, Newton, Locke, and, you know, the final one, most celebrated, George Gordon, Lord Byron. Barrett had already, um, always, sorry, admired Byron's poetry, especially Charles Harold. And for her, Byron represented an ideal of the first-rate poet who is also politically engaged. For Byron's involvement in the Greek War of Independence and his death in Missolonghi in April 1824 marked him out as a liberal hero martyr and further you know, you know, aroused you know, European sympathy for the Greeks. Barrett would later write to her friend, the novelist Mary Russell Mitford, that when she was 10, she wanted to run off and become Lord Byron's page. It's an amazing ambition in all kinds of gender and sexual ways going on there, which I'll, I'll just leave you with. Um, so it's unsurprising that Barrett both celebrated Byron at the end of an essay on mind and in another poem, Stanzas on the Death of Lord Byron. Originally published in The Globe and Traveller, Stanzas on the Death of Lord Byron was also included as one of the other poems in the essay on mind volume. This is part of the poem. He was and is not. Greece's trembling shore sighing through all her palmy groves shall tell that Harold's pilgrimage 
at last is o'er. Mute the impassioned tongue and tuneful shell that erst was wont in noblest strains to swell. Hush the proud shout that rode Aegean's wave. For lo, the great deliverer breathes farewell, gives to the world his memory and a grave, expiring in the land he only lived to save. Britannia's poet, Greece's hero, sleeps, and freedom, bending o'er the breathless clay, lifts up her voice and in her anguish weeps. For us, a night hath clouded o'er our day and hushed the lips that beneath, that, that beneath our forest lay. Alas, and must the British lyre resound a requiem while the spirit wings away of him who on its strings such music found and taught its startling chords to give so sweet a sound. Thank you, Sharon. As a celebratory elegy, this poem equates Byron with his own hero, Charles Harold. Harold's pilgrimage at last is ah, and constructs him as the great deliverer who arrives myth-like, riding the Aegean waves before expiring in the land he only lived to save. With his death, the power of language, communication and song seems to be withdrawn both from Greece and from Britain too. Mute the impassioned tongue and tuneful shell. So for Barrett, the young poet who wanted to be Byron's page, the death of a hero becomes equated with the death of the Greek spirit and the potential death of poetry itself. And somewhere in this and in the repeated recourse to Byron generally, it's Barrett's own desire to resurrect Byron's voice and to become his successor. From the security of Hope End then, the young Elizabeth Barrett was able to begin establishing her voice as a poet of liberty and political concerns, a voice that would be uncompromisingly heard over the next four decades. But then, in 1828, her mother died, leaving a huge fracture in the family structure. Elizabeth's poetry often has a sense of what she terms a mother want around the world. And three years later, the family were forced to sell, um, sell Hope End and leave the area when their finances were badly hit by the shifts in the British slave trade. For the background of Elizabeth Bout's youth is the fact that the Bout family money was largely derived from sugar plantations in Jamaica. There's even a Barrett town there. So the opulence of Hope End is in large part based on that massive racial exploitations of the plantation system, as indeed was so much early 19th century wealth. Although the Slave Trade Act of 1807 stopped the trafficking of slaves, breeding of slaves still continued on plantations, and it wasn't until the Abolition Act of 1833 that the system came to its point of collapse. Edward Barrett was an absentee landlord, but a number of Elizabeth's brothers spent time out in Jamaica, and this is something I'm sure we'll come back to this afternoon with Laura's um, talk. As the foundations of the Barrett family wealth collapse then, Elizabeth's diary from this town becomes, time, becomes full of references to anxieties about money 
and losing hope ends, when the home is up for sale and people are walking around it, for example. She constantly uses the language of intrusion and violation. Those bridges come back to see the house again, she writes in one entry. Oh, to hear their feet walking all over it, even upstairs, even to my very door. The previous family home, a space of stability and possibility, has become broken. And the family were forced to move first to Sidmouth and then to London. And from this point on, I think, there's a real concern with what home means in Elizabeth's poetry, a space of security in terms of family or emotional relations, or even in the idea of the home of the nation. Her work is full of exile figures, full of searches for home, full of searches for security. In the late 1830s, in the late, sorry, 1830s, when Elizabeth Brown was quickly gaining an international representation as a poet, it's important to remember when she got married to Robert Brown, she was far more famous than he was. I'd like to emphasize at every point I possibly can. Um, she reflected on her career so far, writing in the preface to what would be her most important volume to date, Poems 1844. Barrett asserted that poetry has been a serious thing to me as life itself, and life has been a very serious thing. I have done my work so far as work, and as work I offer it to the public. And it's this work, this commitment to the power of poetry, to the importance of art and the role of literature in bringing about social and political change, which began here in Lebury at Hope End and its environs. Edward Barrett's Hope End was demolished in 1872 and a new house built. But it was this area and these spaces which enabled the young Elizabeth Barrett, in those words of Aurora Lee we quoted earlier, to let go conventions and push to elemental freedom. And it was this area which subsequently provided the foundations for Elizabeth Barrett Browning's phenomenal career, the importance of which we're still only coming to fully understand and recognise. Thank you very much. Thank you.